So uh, we are in Mark chapter 12, continuing our series in Mark's gospel. And we're going to look at the greatest commandment or the commandment that Jesus says is the greatest commandment. And it's Mark 12, 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28 to 34. The word of God reads, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we continue through our series in Mark's Gospel, and we, we see this encounter that Jesus has with one of the scribes, uh, Lord, we, we see this snapshot of what Jesus deems to be the most important commandment from God. Uh, and given that Jesus says it's the most important commandment, we can only assume that it has greatest significance to the Christian life. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom in understanding what this great commandment signifies why it's so important and what it should mean to us today. And so, Lord, as always, may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I've got a question. Um, if I were to ask you, if someone were to ask you, out of everyone in the world right now, who do you love the most? Uh, what would you say? Uh, for some parents, it might be their kids. For some people, it might be their wife, or it might be your mum or your dad. It might be your boyfriend or girlfriend if you're dating. Um, for me, uh, I don't think it's any surprise. It's, it's my, my... Oh, she's not even here. It's my wife. <laughs> um, and I know I keep mentioning my wife in a lot of my sermons, but it's true. Um, out of everyone on the face of the planet, it'd have to be my wife. Um, I apologize to my mother if she's tuning in right now. I'm actually taking her out to dinner tonight for her birthday, but it is my wife. Um, no one really comes close to my wife. And it's not really a difficult decision for me. Uh, outside of the worship of God, there's not really that much that I wouldn't be willing to sacrifice for my wife. Uh, and I don't know who it is for you. Uh, if, it's, if you're married, I hope it's your spouse. Uh, if you're not married, I hope it's your mom or your dad. Um, but that's, that's, you know, generally what people expect, isn't it? Um, but there is a question that a lot of people follow up after they ask, who do you love the most in the world? And that's why. What is it about this person that you like or love so much? What's so great about this person? And as I pondered, as I was preparing this sermon, um, I, I pondered 
how I would respond to that question if someone were to ask me that today. And I realized something. If you asked me that question about seven years ago when I was dating my wife, as opposed to you asking me today, uh, the answers that I would give back then as opposed to today would actually be very, very different. Um, if you asked me back in the day, Jay, what do you love about Jun? Um, when you're in that honeymoon, lovey-dovey dating stage, uh, everyone kind of gives that stock standard answer. I like her because she's beautiful, she's sassy, she loves to eat, I think she's cute, I think she's pretty, I think she's this, she's, she's just fun to be around, fun to hang out with. And then if you're really infatuated with her, you know, in the early days of dating, someone will ask, well, what about her flaws? You know, she does this, this, and this. What about all this? Doesn't that bother you? It's like, no, that's, that's cute. That's generally what people say, isn't it? Oh, you know, she, I don't know, what do people do? Like, she picks her nose, oh, that's so cute. Like, it's, it all looks adorable and attractive to you, no matter what they do. And you know what? People will say, she just makes me happy. Like, just, she, I love everything about her, and even her flaws. Like, despite all of that, just being around her makes her happy. And I don't listen to music very much, but I have heard one song that my wife kept playing, and it, it has this line in it, I like me better when I'm with you. Do you guys know that song? It's, you know, I find that song so irritating. But nonetheless, yeah, that song rings true for a lot of people that are dating. And, you know, if, if you asked me, what do you love about your wife seven years ago when we were dating? That's probably the answer I would have given. Uh, the reality, and I'm sure people that are married can attest to this, um, the reality is that that kind of attitude cannot be maintained um, after you get married. Um, sometimes it's not going to be a season of, I like me better when I'm with you. Um, sometimes it'll be, I feel very irritated when I'm with you. I'm sure my wife will be able to say that uh, a lot about me. And yet, despite all of this, I can say confidently that even though there's more seasons of irritation after I got married, I love my wife now more than I did before I got married. Uh, it's not because she's sassy. She is a sassy woman. Um, and it's not because she loves to eat. Because uh, after you get married... It's like ongoing grocery bills that you have to keep paying for. Um, I love her because she is my wife. I realized more and more day to day that I had the privilege of marrying a daughter of the Most High God. I am hers and she's mine. You know, the qualities of her being sassy, me finding her beautiful, you know, it's good. But I love June because she's June. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the perfect husband or I've tapped into the perfect kind of love. Uh, I'm far from it. Um, if you ask my wife to list my flaws, I guarantee you she can just rattle on for days about everything that I do um, that's annoying. Um, but what I, what I want to say is that the reason I share this is because I, I realize more and more that love um, or my love for her, it can't be derived by qualities about her. It can't be derived by things she does or doesn't do. Uh, I'm realizing more and more that I just love my wife because she's my wife. And as I started thinking about that, it helped me understand a little bit more uh, of today's passage, which is about the love that we're commanded to have for God. 
and it's driven and motivated because of the love that God has for us, which we'll come to in a moment. Um, but the last few weeks in Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus, he's had people challenge him, approach him and challenge him. We saw a few weeks ago, the chief priest, you know, after Jesus flipped over the money tables in the temple, the chief priest came to him and said, you know what, what kind of authority, who gives you the right to do this? And then the week after Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus and tried to trap him by saying, you know what, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And then last week we saw the Sadducees give that ridiculous hypothetical question that if this woman's husband died and she married her brother and then he died and then married her brother or his brother and then time seven, whose husband would she or whose wife would she be when they get to heaven? But today we're introduced to a man from a group called the scribes. And unlike the previous passages, it's not a team of people that come to challenge Jesus. Uh, but I genuinely believe that it was someone that wanted answers, genuinely wanted an answer to a difficult question that they had. And if you're wondering who the scribes were, the scribes were kind of like the academic theologians of the day. Uh, remember the Jewish religious leaders, they were all about the law of God, Genesis to Deuteronomy. They were obsessed with the law of Moses. And so if you look at the scribes, they were experts in the law. Uh, we've got a few lawyers in our congregation. You could probably equate them to modern day lawyers. These guys weren't just any lawyers. These were top tier lawyers or barristers by today's standards. Um, all these guys did was study and memorize the law of Moses. This, these guys could recite Genesis 1 and finish reciting Deuteronomy, like just from beginning to end. That's how intimate they were with the word of God. But like I said, I don't think this scribe came to challenge Jesus. I don't think he came to dis discredit him or attack his identity and reputation. Um, firstly, because verse 28 tells us that he came by himself. Didn't come with a team. Verse 28 says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. So last week's dispute. Um, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? He came. Not because he wanted to challenge Jesus, but because he saw the commotion from last week's passage, saw this back and forth exchange that Jesus had with the Sadducees, was impressed by the way Jesus handled himself. And so the scribe decides, well, I've got this question that I'm just dying to find the answer to. And that question is, which commandment is the most important? And the way Mark details this account, like I said, it doesn't seem like it's premeditated. Um, the previous groups that challenged Jesus, remember there was a lot of meticulous planning that went into it. They, 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 you know, they devised and they schemed to find ways to trap Jesus. But on the contrary, for this, for this one scribe, it seems like he just came, heard the commotion, listened to Jesus and thought, this guy seems to have answers. And so he puts forward this deep theological question that the lawyers and scribes and theologians of the day just couldn't reach a general consensus on. And he thought, thinks, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to give Jesus this question. Let's see if he can give me an answer. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, I just want to take a minute to pause here and explain why this question is so significant and a bit of context. Because the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Torah or the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it, it contained 613 commandments from God, 613. 248 of those commands were positive, 
meaning that, you know, do this, do this, do this. Uh, 365 of those were negative, as in don't do this, don't do this, and make sure you don't do this. Now, firstly, memorizing 613 commandments in itself would have been a mission. Um, memorizing it would have been hard. Constantly remembering it would have been even more hard. Proactively memorizing, remembering, and keeping it would have been impossible. And so as I mentioned in previous weeks, groups like the Pharisees, to make sure they didn't forget the commands, they would create extra rules on top of God's original 613 commands, categorize them, and they create these extra rules that had a bunch of God's commands summarized in it to make sure that they wouldn't break God's laws. So for example, I, I gave that example on, you know, God commands that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. So they'd create extra rules about how far you could walk on the Sabbath to make sure that the original command wouldn't be broken. So instead of memorizing all the laws, they created these subcategory rules for themselves to help them keep the original commands. But even if you create extra rules to categorize it and make it easier, the chances of you forgetting one or breaking one, even if it's not intentional, was almost a given. Uh, my wife yesterday asked me, my wife always does this when she's thirsty and can't be bothered going downstairs to get her, herself a glass of water. She'll ask me, Jay, she'll say it in a very sweet voice, Jay, do you love me? Like, yeah. Like, really? Like, yeah. It's like, well, if you love me, give me a glass of water. Um, that's her way of getting me to do stuff for her. But yesterday she asked me to get her a glass of water, and I said, yeah, in a minute, because I was preparing today's sermon, uh, and then I forgot. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just heard her call, where's my water? Um, but it's just a given. You forget stuff. And so what they did on top of God's original 613 commands was create extra rules to categorize these to make sure the original wasn't broken. They considered God's commands important. And it was important. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, like not, the, not even the little smallest dot, will pass away from God's law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands, so even the smaller commands, if you relax it and teach others to do the same, You'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever teaches them and does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so with all these laws and categories and all these extra rules created, there were categories where, okay, these are the more important ones, these are the less important ones, and this man, this scribe wanted to know, okay, we've got categories, but which one is the most important? Or a more accurate way to rendition the translation is, what is the heart of all of God's commandments? Like we've got 613. What is, what is the motive? What's the heart behind all of this? And the answer from Jesus is very significant because he quotes the Old Testament and he quotes a prayer. Well, not a prayer. It became a prayer. But Deuteronomy 6 is what he quotes. And he quotes something called the Shema, which to Jews, it's, it's, it becomes, it's become a call to prayer. Uh, it was teachings given by Moses, and it's a call to prayer. It's like, you know, 
we're a Pentecostal church, and if you go to the Korean services, they do that. They call it in Korean, is it Samcha? Like, it's like, Lord, you cried out three times, and it's like a, a rallying call to prayer. That's what this was to the Jews. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And even to today, Jews, when they hear that in Hebrew, uh, this is the one Hebrew verse I memorized off by heart. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh When Jews hear that, it's like they get goosebumps and they turn and they just start praying. I've heard that even soldiers, they, they pray this twice a day. I've heard even Israeli soldiers on the battlefield, if they get shot and they lay there dying with their comrades, they want the final moments of their life to be the rec- to, to, to recite this prayer. They'll lie there dying. And they'll pray, Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Had. Jesus shares this passage from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he continues on and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, why is this so significant? Why is it so important that Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6? Why is it so important that he quoted Moses? Well, it's important because one of the major accusations that the Jewish leaders had towards Jesus at the day was that he was trying to overthrow Judaism, overthrow the old ways, the Old Testament, overthrow everything that Moses taught. Because for the Jews, no one had, in their eyes, no one had a closer relationship to God than Moses. Like even King David that they celebrate as their greatest ever king. They probably consider Moses to be of higher, you know, to have possessed a higher intimacy with God because he came face to face with God. He received hand-scribed tablets from God. For them, Moses embodied Judaism. And so the Jewish leaders, one of their accusations was that Jesus, he's anti-Moses. He's trying to overthrow everything that we believe. And yet by quoting the Shema, the very words of Moses for this scribe that came to ask him this question, and anyone that was in the vicinity hearing Jesus recite this, they would have done a second take. They would have been like, what? This guy's quoting Moses. He's clearly, by quoting Moses, Jesus is showing, he's clearly not against Moses. If anything, by quoting the Shema, Jesus is showing, I'm not against Moses, I am aligned with him, which is exactly true. Because if you talk talk about categorizing laws, when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, I mentioned this earlier on in my Mark series, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, those two commands summarize what? The Ten Commandments. Because the first four commandments are all about God. The last six commandments are all about your neighbor. And so by Jesus quoting the Shema and sharing these two commands, he's showing that Jesus is not against Moses. He's not against the Old Testament. He is aligned to it. Or even more accurately, the Old Testament is aligned to him. Why? Because the scriptures are all about Jesus. That's why Jesus teaches in that Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I've come to abolish the law 
all the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And so, have you ever had someone like answer a question and their response is just worded so perfectly? You're like, ah, yes, that, that. Like they've, they've even got memes where, you know, you can put it on forums or chat groups. Say if someone says something that you agree with, there's that, that meme with like this pointing at the message above. Um, that's kind of what's happening here. Because the moment the scribe hears the answer from Jesus, he says, you're right, teacher, rabbi. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all understanding, with all strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's like he's saying, yes, that's it. What you, yeah, what, you, what, what Jesus just said, guys, why? Why was he so impressed with Jesus' answer? Because for the Jewish leaders... Religion had become exactly that, a religion, a system of commands and rules, a system and a structure of do this, don't do that, perform these customs, do these cleansing rituals, and then maybe you'll be all right with God. And for anyone that had a genuine desire for God, when you enter into a system like this, whilst you might start off strong, you might start with a lot of zeal and passion, there will eventually come a point where you just feel an emptiness in your soul that just consumes you because religion over the course of time will start to feel robotic. But Jesus says, firstly, there is only one God when he shares the Shema. There are no other gods. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And this is more than just a generic, metaphorical, poetic way for Jesus to describe the love that we're called to have. It's not a generic, symbolic way. It is a very specific and systematic way that Jesus describes how we are to love. Because the heart is the engine room for your thoughts in Hebrew literature. The soul is considered the source of your desires and feelings. That's why when you read the Psalms, my soul cries out to you, O Lord. It's the psalmist expressing the very depths of his desires and his feelings to be with God. The mind encompasses your thinking and your understanding and your strength and your power is all about action. And if we're to view matters of faith in a systematic way like this, I think if we're honest, we'll have to confess that we have a tendency to fall short in at least one, if not multiple, of these categories. For the scribe, the reason he loved the response from Jesus so much was because it probably diagnosed the emptiness that he was feeling. Because this is a guy that immersed himself into Judaism. Everything that you know was all about religion, this is what it, this guy devoted his life to. And he realized that though he'd focused his strength and his mind when it came to God, he poured everything when it came to strength and mind, he probably realized that the heart and the soul had been neglected. That's probably why Jesus' response resonated so true to him. Probably thought we've been all about the doing and the action, but we've forgotten to remember.
that loving God has four facets. It's much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's much more than the external things that we do or do not do. What God desires is the heart. And the whole point of these commandments isn't so much that God will love us, because we know he already loves us. We're to obey, not to be loved, but because he loved us first. And we're to obey because he loved us first, because we love him. The motivation for obedience is not acceptance from God, but love for God, because he loved us first. And so this scribe is impressed with the answer from Jesus, and Jesus responds to his response. And says, you know what? I see you've answered wisely. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And then it said, afterwards, no one dared to ask him a question. Jesus says, well, he doesn't say rather, you're in the kingdom of God. You get it. You're in the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. He says, you're not far from it. Why? Why not you're in it? And the reason is because you can have an epiphany like this, a revelation of wisdom. But ultimately, if you're going to embrace the Father and become a citizen of heaven through the gospel, then it begins with rep repentance, prayer, and placing your faith in Christ. You embrace the Father by first embracing the Son. Because when it comes to the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here, who's actually speaking to the scribe? The king. If you're going to be a part of the kingdom, you have to acknowledge the king. And so for the scribe, whilst his heart and his mind might be in a better place than the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees that we saw in previous weeks, he's near the kingdom of God, but he's not in it. And that's how today's passage ends. And that's probably the first point or observation I want to make about today's passage. That it is possible to be near the kingdom of God and yet not in it. Uh, Jesus in today's passage, by quoting the Shema, established that he's not overthrowing the law of Moses. He's not overthrowing the Old Testament. He's not trying to get rid of Judaism. But he's trying to explain all of this is actually aligned and pointing to him. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not come to abolish, abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Uh, the problem, though, is that if you're saved by grace through faith, and you understand that salvation is by resting on the goodness of God and not on your own works, uh, it does present a dilemma. Because if salvation is not by works of the law, if it's not by your obedience, then what's the point of the law? Right? If you've got this law, and salvation, it's not dependent on how well you keep these laws, then what's the point of the law? What's the point of even reading the law? And that's probably why the Jewish leaders were so upset with Jesus, because they thought he's preaching a message of grace. What about the law of Moses? What's the point of obeying commands and laws if 
They add nothing to your salvation. Well, the truth is, uh, it does play a certain role in the gospel. Because one thing that the law reveals is that we can't obey the law fully. I, I mentioned 613 commandments. I would have been a terrible Jew. My wife told me to get her a glass of water. I forgot within like two minutes. When it comes to the purpose of the law, for the religious leaders, they believed the law was the means of obtaining righteousness, acceptance and salvation from God. Do X, Y and Z and God will accept you. But in reality, even the scribe must have understood that it's not, it's not possible. And so he asks Jesus, what, what's the greatest command? What's the source? What's the, what's the command that just embodies everything? And Jesus, his response explains that it's not an external thing. Like for the Jews, Jewish leaders, they think it's, a, it's an external thing, what you do or don't do with your body. And Jesus, his response is saying it's not about the body. It's about your heart. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. This means that me getting a glass of water for my wife, the intention is that it should be motivated by love, which it is, it is, I promise you. But for many people, you might look at the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and if you're honest, you might say, this, this is even harder to do. How, like, especially if you're an atheist, I remember I asked this question, how can you love a God that sends anyone to hell? How can you love a God that allows pain and suffering, that allows children in wars to be blown up to smithereens? How can you allow or love a God that sends people to hell for not obeying his law? But like I mentioned, the law does serve a purpose. It reveals our sinfulness. It reveals our inability to fulfill God's law. But it does something else. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll realize that God's law, whilst it points to our inability, it also points to something else. It points to our need of a saviour. It points to the reality that we need something outside of ourselves for our security. A goodness and righteousness that is so secure that it casts out all fear and gives us hope and unwavering assurance. And that's what we find in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, but I've also come to fulfill the prophets. Because what is the prophets? It's prophecies that promise that this person is coming. And Jesus, by saying, I have fulfilled the prophets, he's saying that the, the saviour, the stability, the hope, the assurance that you've been waiting for, it's here in me. I am the embodiment and demonstration of God's perfect love for you. So when he comes to say, I've come to fulfill and the law and the prophets, one of the things he was revealing was that knowing 
that man cannot rest upon his goodness. That he lives the perfect life that we couldn't live, dies the death that we were meant to die, rises again, conquering death that satisfied the wrath of God, and it was all done out of love for you. I mentioned, who do you love most in this world? With the sacrificial love. And I don't know about you, there's not a lot of people that I can, like, I do love you guys, but it's like, there's not a lot of people in, like, my inner circle that I can say, I would just, I would give my kidney for this person. Like, that's, it's, and yet, we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because he loved us with an even greater love than that first. Jesus tells the scribe, when he hears the scribe's response, you're near the kingdom of God, because he understood. The scribe understood that what God desires, it's not an external checklist, checklist to do external things, to do or don't do things with your body. But rather, what God desires is the heart. So Jesus says, not that you're in the kingdom, but you're neither. You're not far from the kingdom because at this point in time, he hasn't accepted Christ yet. He's almost there, but not yet. And the Gospels don't tell us, because I don't mention this guy again. This passage doesn't mention him by name. It uh, doesn't tell us if this guy embraced Christ. I hope he did. Um, but it would have been tragic, wouldn't it, if he just remained near the kingdom of God but never entered it or became a citizen of the kingdom of God. Uh, but I think that's a danger that we face today. That for so many of us, we're content with being near. We're content with religion, being a part of religious community. We're content with being near the kingdom of God, but never in it. Being bound by religious rules, but never embracing the Son of God. Point number two, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the last point. Uh, I, I just want to share, um, there's a movie, my, my favorite actor of all time. I was talking with Pastor Alvin the other day. Coincidentally, it's his favorite actor of all time. Uh, Denzel Washington. Uh, amazing, amazing. This guy's just so talented. And he's a Christian as well, so it helps. Um, but... There is, you know, there's, there's a lot of movies that he's been in. Training Day, amazing. Um, the Equalizer 1, 2, and 3, even more amazing. Um, but there is a movie that not a lot of people know about, and it's called Fences. Anyone, anyone seen Fences? Yeah. It's one of the lesser-known movies. And what I love about this movie is that, for once, he doesn't portray the hero. It starts off looking like he's the hero, that the, the father um, of a black family during times when racism was like just an epidemic in America, earns a living, barely makes ends meet, provides for his family. He looks like that hero, that hardworking father that's all about family. Um, but then as the movie progresses, Denzel does an amazing job. He becomes the anti-hero. But you start to see his flaws, that he's not really... All that. And there is a powerful scene at the end where Denzel does everything for his family and yet they don't feel loved by him. 
And so his son confronts him and asks him, why don't you like me? And I'm not even going to try to pretend like I can do Denzel, but I'm just going to quote. He says, like you, I've got to go out there every morning, bust my butt, put them, or I won't use the slur, but it's like white, white people, every day, you think I do that because I like you? You're about the biggest fool I ever saw. It's my job, my responsibility. A man is supposed to take care of his family. You live in my house, feed your belly with my food, put, my, put your behind on my bed because you're my son. Not because I like you, because it's my duty to take care of you. I owe a responsibility to you. And let's get this straight right here. And now before we go along any further, I don't have to like you. That was cold. It was so cold. And that's the scene where it becomes the turning point where you realize Denzel's not the hero of this movie. He's an anti-hero. Or if he's a hero, he's certainly a flawed hero. And you see this son, he's just heart, heart breaks because he was hoping that somewhere deep down in his father's heart, there was, you know, like, even if it's tough love, that there was some love that the father had for him. But I think that's the best that humanity has to offer, a flawed kind of love. And yet, when Jesus commands us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, those four facets, descriptors of how we are to love, they're given because they're the limitations that we have as a people. We have a heart, we have a soul, we have mind, and then we have a God-given strength. That's the limitation. Those, that's the, the boundary of which we are capable of loving. And that's how we're called to love. But the motivation behind that is because there is an even greater love that's unrestrained by these four facets. A love that is perfect, that's lavished upon us. An agape love from God. And so whilst salvation isn't about do this or don't do that, this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength does give us some helpful boundaries in terms of how we are to define our love for God. And I think most things are pretty obvious to us. You know, love with all your strength, that's pretty obvious. I remember in youth ministry, um, the the students would try to show how much strength they had by carrying chairs under, you know, that old church meme, how many chairs can you carry under each arm to impress the girls? Um, so loving with all your strength, we know it's about action. It's not foreign to us. Loving with all your heart and soul. We know that God desires our heart. We know that when we sing worship songs at the beginning of service, that, that, that we're meant to be pouring our heart out to God. But the challenge I want to throw down to you, and that's what I'll conclude my sermon with, is how much thought have you given to loving God with all your mind? Because I think this is one of the most neglected facets of this command. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. The scribe, when he responds to Jesus, elaborates on that and says, understanding. We are to understand God. And the way we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind and understand him is by what God reveals about himself in scripture. So you might be religious. 
You might have immersed yourself into FLM. You might be serving in all these different teams. But we are called to love with all our mind. And I apologize in advance, but I have to say this. If you don't have a relationship with God's word, you don't have a relationship with God. That's the reality. And so my encouragement to you, I know New Year's is right around the corner. If you're going to start a new Bible reading plan, even, even if you know, even if you failed the last 15 years to finish that Bible reading plan, start again. Press on as long as you can. I'm not going to chastise anyone for not completing their Bible reading plan. I will chastise you if you don't start a Bible reading plan. If you fail, start again. I don't care if you like start at Deuteronomy, get to Leviticus, and then you stop. Start at Deuteronomy and go to Leviticus again. Do that like 20 times so that you know Genesis and Exodus, like the back of your hand. But if you are going to love the Lord with all your mind, if you're going to be serious about this endeavor, remember loving God with all your heart, soul, and your strength hinges on how much you love God with all your mind. Why? Because you don't desire something or someone that you don't know. Do you? When I was dating my wife, my love for her grew as I got to know her. Not because of what someone else told me about her. Not because of what I read on a forum that Korean women are into or what they don't like but because I spent more time with her. I love Chiyun because she is Chiyun because I got to know Chiyun. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we have this endeavor to worship God, love God, and know God, and yet neglect the one source of information we have where God explains everything that we need to know about himself. We have to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. But all of this hinges on our love for God with our mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you preserved the words of Jesus through men such as Mark, through the other Gospels, and so, Lord, we pray that we would approach commands like this with great humility. Not just to view the greatest command as some romanticized poetic statement on the depth of love, but to understand it systematically. That to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength is linked and impacted by loving you with our mind. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that the Word of God wouldn't be foreign to us, but it would be something that we cherish, that our life would be saturated with your Word, that our soul and our heart would just be oozing with the power of God's Word. So, Lord, for some of us, maybe we're in a season where we've departed from God's word or maybe we've neglected 
God's word in our life. But Lord, you are the God of new beginnings. You cleanse, you wash, you make us whiter than snow. And so Lord, for all of us, we, if, if that is us, we repent and we desire to start again. And we pray that FLM, for all of us, that we would be defined as a people that are all about your word, that love your word, so that we can love you with all of our minds. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.